Our first reading for today is from Deuteronomy chapter 23, starting in verse 15. You shall not give up his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Our second reading is from Matthew 12, verses 1 through 16. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples saw it, and they said to him, I'm sorry, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him? but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath and will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Many false ideas exist about the law of God. We will cover two major wrong ideas, two large paradigms, which are, if you wish to imagine, on either side of the road, and those are ditches. If you stay in the center of the road and use the law in a lawful way, uh, you can maintain a good course, but it's very easy to go off into the right or the left ditch, uh, whichever one is which, it doesn't really matter. But these two ideas are, are similar in nature, as we'll see in a few minutes, but they're, they're different in aspect or how they are made manifest. And those two errors are one, that the law is meaningless and Christians have no moral obligation to follow any of God's commands. That would be called antinomianism, as we're going to examine here in a minute. And the other the other error that we fall into concerning God's law is that of legalism, by which we say, not only is God's law, not only must it be fulfilled if we are to be righteous before God, but also we need to expand that law into ever-increasingly narrow and burdensome forms, and that might be understood as legalism. And so these two means uh, to, be, uh, to seek to justify ourselves before God are both wrong, And it's important for us as believers to understand why God gave the law and also how we as Christians are to understand the law's use today. Um, This is a major idea within Christianity, and we can't cover it all in one sermon. But these are the two main errors at play concerning the law in our time. So with that in mind, I want to look, that's kind of the major structure of the foundation of this message, but it's, it is Christ who comes to show us both uh, that he alone can be the fulfillment of the law, and he is the one who allows us to do the works of the law from the heart, not from external commands given, but rather being changed by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at this, these two readings today as giving a little precursor to how one would use the law in a lawful manner today as Christians. First, we're going to look at the righteousness of God's law. Many people, as we saw earlier, have no valid use for the law any longer. They, they say that the law is pointless and has passed away completely. But Jesus Christ said that uh, neither heaven nor earth would pass away until all that was fulfilled in the law took place. And that, that means something, and we're going to look at what, what it means. We're going to look at God's provision for the sojourner as a particular application of what a particular command in the law of God, how it applies to Jesus Christ, and also what it tells us about the Father's nature and heart. God's law is intended to be a moral foundation for his people such that they would begin to understand who God is. Uh, If you read any writing or any body of of art or literature by an author, it communicates something about that author. And God's law demonstrates aspects of his divine nature to us in an explicit and clear way. And it's important for us to see that in order to understand that this law is not arbitrary, but rather it comes from a holy God who has good intentions in giving his law. 
This was the major uh, failure of our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they were confronted with the serpent's accusation that God had given this one command not to eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, but rather that God had given this command in a capricious and exclusionary way as a thing that Adam and Eve should rebel against, as if God was keeping from them something that was good, when actually it was he was keeping something from them that destroyed them. And so we see that God has a moral basis for all of the commands in his law. Now, we're not going to have time to discuss why every particular law in the Old Covenant had its particular moral basis and which ones are uh, fulfilled in the various customary and dietary issues. That's not our point today. Our point is to understand why over and over again, the Psalms, Paul, uh, various uh, prophets use the phrase God's law when they refer to God's word and understanding that it is good and it is right. And Paul over and over again says that he agrees with it. He says it's good. He says it's holy. And so the law is very, very important for us as believers. Moving from that, we're going to see our absolute need for Christ to be the fulfiller of the law and for us spiritual nourishment. Through this debate that goes on between Christ and the Pharisees, it's a spiritual conflict. And we see how, the, how men who are dead in their sins and trespasses, these Pharisees, just like us, are unable to understand God's law and pervert it or change it from its original intention to something else. And we need, we desperately need for Christ not only to teach us the law, but also to write it on our heart by his Holy Spirit. And from there to actually give us the grace to do it in such a way as that he would be glorified rather than seeking to justify ourselves. And that is what it means to begin to look at the law in terms of the law and the gospel together. So by saying that we're going to look at God's law, I am not saying that you are trapped under the law. This is the first immediate uh, objection whenever someone talks about the, the right use of the law, which comes from 1 Timothy 1. But, but many Christians falsely uh, use the reasoning in the book of Galatians from Paul, and they say, well, wait a second, brother, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And I would say, amen. You are not under the law, but when Paul says you are not under the law, he means you are not trapped under the law, such as to not be able to break through, if you will. You can imagine the law as either a glass ceiling or maybe, for example, a sheet made of ice, and you are drowning in the waters underneath it, unable to break through. And this was why Christ, as Paul reasons in that very same chapter, was born as one from a woman born under the law so that he would deliver all those who were trapped. But that doesn't mean that God has done away with the law completely. It just means that God has modified those things which are necessary to identify a cultural group of people versus the Gentiles. God has summed up everything in Jesus Christ and made Jew and Gentile to be one, as the book of Galatians says. So understanding that I'm not saying you have to do the law in order to be justified, we will now proceed. But do keep that in mind as we're reading, as we're beginning to understand how are we to live, how is society to be, stru to be structured, we must understand that no one is saying when we say that we're using God's law in a righteous way, as 1 Timothy commands us to do, no one is saying that we are seeking to be justified by God's law. So let's take a look at uh, Deuteronomy. 
as we said earlier, no amount of law keeping will ever justify you before God. And this, the reason for this is twofold. First, that's not God's intention in the law. Uh, the, the Pharisees and really the majority of the, the religious tradition in Israel by the time of the New Testament writers, that is Paul, Peter, the, the other apostles, uh, Jude, the brother of Christ, um, when they're writing about what is going on concerning the law, they are writing to a group of people who had perverted the law from its original intention. When God gives the law in the Old Covenant, he never is telling the people that they are going to be justified. And in fact, what Paul does in the book of Galatians is very important, as we've seen in the last three weeks, is the law was given 430 years after God gave the promise to Abraham. And when God gives the promise to Abraham, it is an act of God's grace. God gives a promise to Abraham. Abraham believes in that promise, trusts God, and responds in faith. And this is exactly how you and I are justified today. We hear the fulfilled promise, that is, Christ came and fulfilled all the promises of the Father to Abraham and all of the promises of Yahweh to Israel, and we believe that to be true. They simply believed it to be true before it came about. And this is the exact same way in which Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, or if you will, Old Covenant, New Covenant believers are saved. No one was ever justified by doing the works of the law because the law was never meant to do that. And even if it was, we never would have the power to do it. I've been trying to keep my house clean. And guess what? I threw my coat on the floor last night after the bonfire. If you can't obey your own little tiny law about keeping your living room clean, what makes you think that you could stand before a righteous judge who has given a holy and beautiful law, according to the psalmists, and even have a smoke of a chance, you know, a vapor that mists away, as the Ecclesiastes writer says. Men are like vapors. Uh, have you ever seen a vapor, like, you know, a, a, a tea kettle, or maybe, it, actually, if you go outside and breathe, you might be able to see some vapor. It goes away. And men, and our performance, our lives are like this. They are like vapor before the eyes of the Lord. There is no substance there. So n- neither was the law given for that purpose, nor would we even be able to do it if it was the case. And therefore, this is good news. Because if this was what God would require, none of us could stand, as the scriptures over and over again says. But that being said, that does not mean that the law has no function at all for a believer. It has a function, and that function is twofold, to show us our need for Christ and to magnify and give explicit definition to what sin is. Paul reasons in the book of Romans that the reason the law came was to magnify sin, not magnify as in create, but demonstrate Because without the law, without a clear, explicit recording by God alone of what is and is not sin, our consciences would continually justify themselves as, no, that motive was pure, or no, this this action was actually righteous, even though it appeared to be evil. Uh, The law comes by God to magnify sin and to give us a clear understanding of exactly what and what is and is not righteousness. And that being said, it shows us that we need someone to fulfill the law. Because over and over again, we give ourselves evidence that we cannot. So we see that we need the law in order to show us our need for a law keeper, and that is the man Christ Jesus. 
We're tempted by these two errors, as I said earlier, ditches on the side of the road, legalism, that is creating our own law or perverting God's law to do something it was never intended to do, or antinomianism, which is a big fancy word, and it just means uh, against nomos or uh, law, that's the, the word for law. Anti-nomos just means against the law. These two different ditches we can easily fall into, and it's important that we maintain perspective as we are going on our walk as believers. These two ditches are equally dangerous. They're equally dangerous. It is much better to be cautious of both of the ditches rather than one or the other. Okay, it, it's just as important if you want to modify the analogy to make sure you're not passing the left median line as it is not to go into the ditch. Uh, if you drift over, there's a very good chance there's another car coming down the road. The point is that you cannot simply, as a New Testament believer, think, oh, I'm under grace, I need to be careful of legalism. You also must understand that you must be careful of falling into the trap of being against God's law. And if you never achieve this maturity, as a, as a Christian believer, you'll, you'll read the scriptures and you'll see David say, the law is righteous and good and holy. His precepts are, you know, honey to the, to the stomach and they're sweet to the taste. And you'll say, wait a second, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not under the law. And then you'll be confused and then you'll need pastoral counsel. And so the, the, the point is that you have to understand balance with your perspective on God's law. Being those who are seeking that balance, we see that the law has another function, not just to show us of our need for Christ, but also to demonstrate the heart and nature of the Father. And we're going to look at one of these particular provisions. So any assumption that God's law is irrelevant and arbitrary, that is, it doesn't apply today, and it never really had any true meaning to it back then either, that actually belies or uh, it reveals that we actually are in ignorance concerning the law because the law read by the eyes of faith, aided by the Holy Spirit over and over again shows us, and it resonates within us, as Paul says in the book of Romans, that the Holy Spirit cries out Abba within ourselves. When, when you read the law, you see glimpses of the Father's heart and his kind nature. And so it's, it's important for us to begin to reorient how we approach the law of God. Modern, uh, modernists, those who uh, believe in technological progress, sociological development, uh, this is mostly noted within uh, political circles, for example, uh, they assume that because we are believers, or we are humans, rather, uh, in this second millennia of this, you know, half of time, uh, they don't really think about that too much, but in this second millennia, we have advanced technologies and we have computers and we can make microchips smaller than nanometers and we can go to space and we've conquered all of these things. They, they assume that because we are modern, we have technological progress and moral superiority to those who have come before us. They see a trend line throughout history, and they see things generally improving in both government and sociology as a trend in the world, they, dis they disjoint that trend from its origin, which is the Christian faith, which is an assertion I will make but not defend. If you want to find out how I defend it, ask me at lunch. Um, they, they hijack historical progress from its origin and simply assume that because we are the latest people to arrive, that we are the right judges. 
and we subject everything that's come before us in the light of modern standards. The problem with this is that moder modernity or modernism as a philosophy of life, as a philosophy of government, it stands in the exact same shoes and philosophical and, and ideological tradition as those which have handed down a number of completely oppressive things concerning slavery in this culture. This is the common objection to the use of God's law today. Many people say, well, God's law must be antiquated and therefore irrelevant and arbitrary and actually evil because God condones slavery. And then they do what I would say is um, uh, a bait and switch. They make this comparison between the slavery that shows up in God's law, as we're about to examine at the beginning of our reading today, and then they equate it to, or they say that's exactly the same as antebellum, that's just a big fancy word for before the Civil War, uh, antebellum uh, chattel slavery. Uh, and, and antebellum chattel slavery is completely different from what's going on in the law. Now, uh, that would take very, a lot of time to unpack it, but you have to understand these modernists who accuse God's law of being irrelevant come from the exact same legal, philosophical, and historic tradition that handed down things like the three-fifths compromise. Uh, just, can I get a little show of hands if you know what I mean by the three-fifths compromise? Okay, not as many as we need. So, um, in, the uh, in the Constitution, there was a debate between the northern states, which had a lot of people, and the southern states, which had a lot of people. And the debate was concerning uh, how it was that we should number the delegates for each of the states to the Congress. Uh, for those of you who do not know, we do not live in a democracy. We live in a republic, and a republic is different from a democracy in that uh, we, our founding fathers, understood that putting votes to popular referendum, or that is having every human uh, have to read every law and then vote yes or no on every law, would take much too long. And even today, with all of our modern means of communication, you and I are simply too busy to be involved in governing such that every law that we pass, we would have to decide. So we created a system of federalism by which we would be represented by a person who takes the name of a representative. And there was this debate among those who were forming the Constitution as to how many delegates each state should receive. Certainly, the state should have some sort of representative based on how many people there were. That would certainly make sense today. For example, if we didn't have that, then Ohio would have the exact same amount of political power in Congress as, say, California or New York. And it's clearly not appropriate for that to take place, mainly because those two states have more than double the people who live in Ohio. And so the understanding is that we need uh, a system of representation based on the population. And this is a long-winded way of getting to the point of the northern states were upset because the southern states had a lot of African Americans. And those southern states, which had African-Americans African as slaves, they wanted the African-Americans to be considered just as a normal person in the system of counting. But in our Constitution, there was a compromise made called the Three-Fifths Compromise, which said that African-American slaves should be counted as three-fifths of a person in order to understand how many people should be uh, represented by that state's representatives. And so here we have in the very founding documents of our country, 
a law that says slaves are only three-fifths of a person. And this is the, the exact same legal and moral philosophical tradition that then modernists use and say, well, God's law is antiquated because we now have the truth at this point in history. Later after this, this, this took place in 1787, if, uh, or not 1787, sorry, uh, a little earlier than that. But it eventually was signed, ratified, and it became law for, for many years, hundreds of years. Uh, then after that, at some time right before the Civil War, there was a, a decision that was made, and that decision was signed and ratified by Congress called the Fugitive Slave Act. And what the Fugitive Slave Act said was any slave who made it to a northern state, if they were discovered to be a slave uh, using whatever system of evidence they cared to use at the time, there was, there, there's very hard... I mean, they didn't have databases or fingerprints back then. Uh, it's very hard to understand what sort of evidence they gave. But anyone who was convicted in the North of having escaped the, a sl uh, slave owner in the South was then commanded by law to be sent back. And that was ratified by Congress, which means every, uh, at least the majority of representatives in the United States agreed with the idea. And we're about to see how God's law is superior, uh, superior to that. Um, on its face alone, and, and not even getting into the debate about the fact that the slavery in the Old Testament was completely different from the slavery uh, that existed in this country, uh, which was completely wicked. Uh, now, this isn't a defense. I'm not here saying I want to institute slavery. Don't, don't hear that at all. Uh, but the point is that God had set up a system by which people, Israelites, who had fallen into deep poverty could have a place to live. And that is indentured servitude, which is completely different from chattel slavery. Uh, that being said, then after this point, uh, the Dred Scott decision came down seven years later in 1857. And, and at that point, uh, the Supreme Court said that although the, the Declaration of, of Independence begins with we the people in order to form a more perfect union, and then uh, the Constitution begins with um, the proposition that all men are created equal. Maybe I'm getting those backwards. Thank you, dear. I'm looking to my wife. Uh, those, those ideas are, are switched. But the, the Supreme Court basically stated in the Dred Scott decision three major things, that African Americans could not be considered citizens, even if they weren't slaves, and that the Constitution itself never would have considered African-Americans to be, whether slave or free, whether they would be uh, people recognized by law, and therefore African-Americans had no right to petition courts in the United States. Many people don't understand the severity of the Dred Scott decision, but that's what it says. If you look at the writings of the Supreme Court, only about 160 years ago or so, uh, this is what they decided. And yet, we buy into this philosophy of modernism and therefore accuse God's law of being evil. Now, that was a lot of history lesson, but compare those ideas in those laws with what God's law says. You shall not give up, a, his, up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. Why did God write this law in the first place? He wrote it because he understood that there would be some slave owners who treated their slaves in a terrible way in order for those slaves to desire to leave. And, there, and at another place in the law, it talks about slave owners who treat their slaves well, and the slaves actually love being a part of their master's household and, and 
if that law had any basis, uh, it means something's totally different about the type of slavery that's going on. Verse 16, he shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. That is manifestly different compared to what has been a part of our country's legal history. So we see something about the character and nature of God. God understands the depth of sin such that he makes provision for this type of slavery to not only exist to be a remedy for extreme poverty among Israelites, that is, if they're in total bankruptcy and they've lost all their money and they have nothing else to do, they can at least sell themselves for a period of only seven years to someone else in order to be a hired hand at, in their household and therefore have a place to live. And then after that, they have to go free. Uh, and if, let's say, that slave owner is at that point harsh, God makes a provision for that person to escape. The moral superiority of this is manifestly evident. And so we're about to see how that replays at the last part of our reading in Deuteronomy as well. The law shows not only our need for Christ, but it reveals God's righteous foundation for the culture. God is establishing at this time Israel in a land, and he wishes to give that people a a law system which would differentiate them from the surrounding nations. And that moral foundation reveals the nature and character of that father. Uh, Look at uh, Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any into your bag. Okay, now I want you to imagine you've never heard of a McDonald's. (laughs) Okay, just think about that for a second. You've never seen an Arby's. Uh, No one has ever sliced up freshness at this point in history. Okay, now just with that in, in mind, consider the next... Verse 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Okay, so here we have grapes, we have grain. Uh, the Where we're going should be easily apparent to some of you. But just as the poor are allowed to glean, Yahweh wants travelers to be able to go about their journey. He actually commands multiple times that people go to Jerusalem for feasts and celebrations. And And God has set up this system such that people who are in emergencies, who need food in that moment, can have a means by which to sustain themselves, but not in such a way as they can steal. And in Yahweh's estimation of what's going on in these verses, the private property rights of those who, who are managing the land are not infringed. This is not theft. But look closely. This is not communism either. This is not socialism. God is not saying that they can just take the sickle to whosoever land they want. They have to go in and only take what they can hold in their hand, and they cannot put any in their bag as if to steal from someone. The fruit of the vine and the, the grain of the field is a good thing for the people, and understanding that the land does not belong to the landowner who's tending it or the land manager. It belongs to Yahweh, and the land itself is to be a collective blessing to all of Israel. But again, this is not communism, so you can't just go around and steal from your neighbor. Think about this. If you were able to go into the field and take whatever you want, how would your neighbor be blessed? He would be destroyed. This, If, if it were permissible, this would absolutely destroy the culture. So God establishes a law by which, in a time where there are no McDonald's, 
no Arby's, no places to find fresh food uh, other than a person's home or a person's field. He allows people to glean and to take what is is applicable or what's righteous. And the reason we know it's righteous is not because of our judgment, but rather because it's in God's law. And that moral basis is right and true. And so we understand that this was written actually for Christ to be revealed. This law tells us something about what Jesus Christ does in Matthew 12. So this exact scenario takes place in the reading today. If you were listening, you heard about Christ and his disciples going through a field. And the disciples, they take some of the grain that's in the field. And the Pharisees come and accuse Christ of lawlessness. And they reveal that they, although they've read the law, they have no understanding about God's heart and nature because they equate what the disciples were doing with work. And clearly, God is not doing that. God makes a differentiation between those who take what's in their, uh, able to be held in their hand and what is uh, harvesting. God makes a difference between the two. And the Pharisees look only with external fleshy eyes, fleshly eyes, and they do not understand the heart behind the law. They've perverted the law from its original intention and have subverted God's original design in order to glorify Jesus Christ. King David, who's mentioned by Jesus, did this exact same thing. King David understands the intention of the law, and therefore he and his friends go into the temple and eat what's called the bread of the presence or the showbread. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's just an idea that God had set up in his temple uh, that there would be this particular bread and the people of the the land, the people surrounding that temple would give grain to the priests and the priests would make it into bread and they would put that bread before the presence of God. And then they themselves, the priests alone, not the people would eat of that bread. And that bread was understood to represent multiple things. It, it represents the land from which it came. It represents the people who gave it. And then finally, it represents the priest who is communing with God in that moment. Uh, in messages past, we've seen how when Moses receives the law, he and the elders of Israel go up to God and they eat with him. And God reestablishes this symbol and this pattern in the life of the temple. David is a king, not a priest, and therefore it's unlawful for David to go into the temple and eat that bread. But why did David do it? Because David needed to. His life was in danger. He needed sustenance for he and his fellows who were his group of army men. Um, and uh, they go into the temple and they take the bread of the presence and God does not strike them down. Which shows us that the purpose for God's law is magnifying his nature. It's not to exclude people from understanding who he is. And that is what we do when we subvert God's law by turning it into something it's not, legalism, or ignoring it altogether, antinomianism. And understanding the right use of the law, we see our need for Christ, and Christ is battling the Pharisees in a spiritual uh, standoff here, and he totally disarms them. And at this point, if you were in the Sunday school hour, you might uh, see exactly where this is going. Um, it was coincidentally mentioned to and referenced. But the letter that kills, 
Paul in 2 Corinthians says that the letter kills and the spirit gives life. And many Christians then interpret that to say, well, you're reading the law. The letter kills, brother. No, the letter which kills is the letter by which you're seeking to be justified. The Pharisees have no life in themselves because they are seeking to be justified by the doing of the law and religious form without religious substance, without true life and true faith before God. And so they accuse Christ and his disciples of sinning. And they they accuse Christ of sinning, although it says in the text that his disciples took the grain. The reason we know they're accusing Christ is they say to him, rabbi or teacher or hey you, uh, your disciples are doing this. And and he didn't stop them. So they're accusing him of, of, you know, turning a lax eye to what his disciples are doing in their lives. So Jesus demonstrates by referencing David and the temple that he himself is a greater David and the temple who lives among us. Christ absolutely does not pull any punches in this confrontation. And it's important you see this. It is not harsh to confront people with their sin. And in fact, against this spiritual blindness, that is the only thing that would open the eyes of the Pharisees. Anything less would be unloving. To leave someone in their legalism, to not confront them with what they're doing with God's law, which is wrong, whether they're either changing God's law or substituting their own, is a great unloving thing to do. It's actually cruel. Jesus is attempting to open their eyes to the severity of the issue which has happened in their heart because they're unwilling to come to God. They're they're only willing to approach God at a distance through uh, trying to do the law. And, and seeking to be justified by it. So Jesus demonstrates to them that he is not only the Lord of the Sabbath uh, and able to do uh, whatever good he is wishing to do, but also he demonstrates that he has power over life and death. The Pharisees swear by the temple. This shows up at another place in the, in the Gospels. But the Pharisees actually use the temple as a word of promise. For example, in, in modern parlance or modern speak, uh, we, you might have heard the phrase, I swear on my mother's grave. And, and that phrase is actually pretty serious. What it means is, if I don't uphold this promise, uh, you know, I hope my mom dies. <laughs> um, Swearing by the temple, therefore, we can kind of understand the importance of it. And the Pharisees basically had this rule, you can swear by the temple, but you can't swear by the gold of the temple. And Jesus confronts them and says, what's greater, the temple or the gold which is in it? And uh, shows that they're just thinking about things completely wrong. But the point is, Jesus understands their supreme value on the temple. And he says to them, right after saying, I'm a greater David, I'm the real showbread presence, he then says, I'm greater than the temple which you idolize and worship. And he says, if you understood this, then you would not be accusing us of unrighteousness. He then goes and references um, what he's about to do concerning healing, and he claims to be Lord over the Sabbath day. And understanding Lord, his claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath is Jesus Christ is claiming to be Lord over everything, over everything, because the Sabbath was the cessation of all labor. It was a day that was holy unto the Lord. And so to claim to be the Lord over the Sabbath is to claim to be the Lord over all. Christ presses this point, and he demonstrates that the Pharisees have a completely different vision of who God is. 
because they wish to seek, they, they seek to serve a God who can be honored by men through doing an external thing without having any life going on at the beginning. Christ moves into the temple and he heals a man uh, who has a hand that has absolutely no life in it. Uh, if you're familiar with when God commissions Moses to lead the people of Israel, he gives Moses a sign, and uh, actually two signs. The first sign is the, the fact that Moses can throw down a staff, and that staff becomes a serpent. And at one point in the confrontation with the uh, magicians that Pharaoh employs, uh, his staff or his serpent swallows the other serpents, showing that Moses' authority is greater than the authority of the pharaohs. And Jesus Christ, when he heals this man with a hand that's withered, is, is doing this intentionally. Moses was given, the second sign Moses was given was that Moses was able to take his hand and to put it into his cloak and then pull it out and that hand immediately became leprous. And then God told him to put it back into his cloak and to pull it out, and the hand was restored. God was demonstrating that Moses, at this time, for his specific mission, has authority over life and death. And Jesus does this sign because at this point, the Pharisees are saying to themselves, we are children of Abraham, and we acknowledge the authority of Moses. And Jesus then demonstrates what Moses was able to do, I am as well. And the point is that Jesus then magnifies these healings. He triumphs over not only their understanding of the law, but their understanding of who he is as the one with authority at that time. And then he goes on to heal a ton of more people. Moses was able to do this wonderful, amazing demonstration, but Moses did not have a citywide and nationwide healing ministry. Jesus Christ is demonstrating that he is Lord over everything. The Pharisees' problem is absolutely one that you and I face as well. This problem cannot be externalized as, oh, those bad Pharisees, as if, as if we could just label them as evil and then get on with it. Uh, you and I, we relate to God in a Pharisaical way all the time. We do this with the law. We create a vision of God which is untrue, unfounded, and we seek to justify ourselves before God. And in seeking to justify ourselves before God, we absolutely of necessity must change God's law. Why is that? Well, we see if we are able at all to see anything of the holiness of God and his holy standard, we also have some limited knowledge of our own weakness. And seeing the disparaging realities and the difference between God's standard and our ability to perform, we have to change God's standard. And so we, we seek to establish our own little micro standards, our little mini laws, which we think we can do. And in my example of throwing my coat on the floor last night, I would maintain that uh, you're unable to ever do even your own standard, let alone God's. And whenever you make your own standard, you of necessity accuse others of breaking the law. And this is what the Pharisees do in this passage, isn't it? They create their own standard and then accuse Christ of not stopping the sin of his disciples and countenancing sin itself being a sin. And so we see that this is not a problem just relegated to history. It's not just a problem with the Pharisees of Jesus's time. It's a problem that you and I face. We condemn our neighbor when we seek to justify ourselves and our consciousness and our consciences, but this is not a way to life. You may be able to through a lot of self-effort, put your coat away every time. 
but you n- you're not ever able to reform your heart. And if you're ever willing to become honest with yourself in that regard, you will begin to see your need for Jesus Christ. It's only after you recognize that Christ kept the law perfectly for you that you begin to understand your need for him and you begin to lay down those things, those objections, which prevent you from dealing with reality. And that is understanding what God calls sin in your life as sin. And until you're willing to do that, you'll never see your need for Christ. Until you're able to recognize your total inability to live righteously before God on your own, you can't ever be honest with yourself. And the reason I say that is not because I'm putting some high value on being honest with yourself, but rather using that phrase, being honest with yourself, as just a way to say, until you're willing to lay down your objections to uh, your inability to keep God's law and the magnitude of your sin, you're never willing to become real with the way that life is going on around you. You're never willing, at at this point in life, if you're unwilling to examine your need for a perfect law keeper, you're, you're never going to be able to see why Christ is precious and why it's good news that he kept the law completely. Once you are able to come to terms with the claim that Christ make, that is the only man who is righteous, and the perfect lawkeeper, and the one greater than David, and the two, the true temple who really tabernacles among us, as Christ mentioned, then you will find him nourishing. And I think it's very important, and I think God was intentional in using these laws and this confrontation about God's law, its righteous use, and the subject and nature of the laws that we're examining to show us of our need to come to Christ and to have him be nourishing. The law that is written in Deuteronomy provides two things, that you can go and you can take grapes. And it says you can also go and you can take grain. And grapes and grain, for us, are so important. They are the elements of the meal which we are about to take uh, take place and take part in. God did this intentionally, seeking to demonstrate and point to our necessity to find nourishment in the one who would be able to keep the law perfectly. And Christ, seen in this way, seen after we lay down our objections to making our own law, after laying down our rejection of him as the only one who is righteous, the only man who has ever been sinless, after we lay down those objections, we are able to, by his grace alone, for him to become nourishing to us and for the gospel to really become good news. Just as God made provision in this law for those who were sojourners, God also made provision by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to become for us food. You and I are sojourners. We are weary. We are weak. We are in need of life that is outside of us to come to us. We see this every day when we eat food, but Christ over and over again in the Gospels makes it plain that the real food you need is not pizza or steak or hopefully on Thursday, city barbecue. Um, (laughs) The real food that you need is you need Christ. And Christ himself makes this promise in his teaching in John 6. This is where we're going to close. I'm going to read John 6 and then pray. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Thanks, Jesus. That's very encouraging. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
this sounds weird. <laughs> For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Just as we saw last week in Jesus's prayer in John 17, Christ desires to be for you a source of life. In John 17, Jesus prays that we would be adopted into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that the Father and Christ would have true communion in our hearts by faith, and that's his prayer there. His prayer here, or his teaching here, is that because the Father has invested me with life and because I live with the Father, if you partake in me, you become a partaker of true life. And this is what we mean when we take communion. This is what we do when we celebrate the Eucharist in faith, because we believe that what Christ is talking about here is partaking in the body and blood of the Lord. This is the meal which we are about to partake in. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. We ask God that you would not only renew our understanding of your law, but also its use and its right use, as Paul tells Timothy, but also, God, that we would get, have a greater vision of the importance of the Eucharist. We pray, God, that you would communicate to us something about your divine life, that we would understand the necessity of not just partaking in communion or in the Eucharist, but also, God, in partaking of true life by faith, that we would turn away from all efforts of self-justifying, of, of coming before you on our own terms, of seeking to approach you only after we clean ourselves up. But Lord, that we would understand not only is your law perfect and holy, but also we are never able to do it. And so God, we thank you that you've shown us that there is one who has perfectly fulfilled it, the man Christ Jesus. It is this man that we long to know. In Jesus' name, amen.